Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, I'm, I tend to end up kind of in the background, but I have been at Mosaic since before COVID. And that's always a bit odd because I feel like there's three years that really don't count. Um, and so it's kind of hard to orient, but I've gotten to meet a lot of you. Some of you I have not had a chance to meet, but uh, this has been a very dear place to, to call home. Is there a little bit of echo up here? I feel, okay, because I feel like I'm in a wind tunnel or something. <laughs> How are we doing? Is that better? I'm still hearing a lot of, excellent. Is that better? Excellent. All right. That is, that's much better. All right. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Tim asked if I would be interested in sharing in the new series, We Are a People Who, and immediately my mind filled in the blank. I said, we're a people who see God. And there are many things that contribute to that response on my part. Um, anecdotally, let me just share a few of them, and then some others will come out in the course of our sharing together today. But um, in August, I learned that I had rapid onset stage four prostate cancer. Um, it had matured over the course of a year and um, took me quite by surprise. Um, in that moment, you kind of come to terms with, you know, what is life? What's going on? God, what are you doing? And um, those kinds of things cause you to reflect back on what it is you're doing and why and what you want to pass on. You know, what does, it, what does this mean for the way that I communicate to the people around me and the way that I engage the world as I move forward? On a positive side, um, I'm about two-thirds of the way through my chemotherapy. My accounts have dropped almost to zero. Um, I still have um, metastasized cells all through my body in lymph nodes, um, bone marrow, etc. So we'll see what, what this projects forward here in the next couple of months. And I also spend much less on haircuts. So there's that side too. But um, yeah, so, so there's that, and that's preoccupied a lot of the fall. And then in December, somebody from the school asked if I would be part of a legacy video series. Now, I thought, okay, does that mean I'm old, or does that mean that you think I have something to share? I hope it, I'm telling myself it's the, the latter. Um, but they had been at Multnomah as a student, actually all the way back when I came to Multnomah, and they really wanted to have an interview and just to ask the question, what shapes you? Why do you do what you do? And how do you determine what it is that you're passing on to your students? And again, the same response comes. It's about seeing God. There's, there's, and that seems very fundamental and in some ways almost cliche, but there's a incredible nuance to that that um, for me is so multifaceted that it's hard to fit into even a short talk like this. Obviously, it encompasses my life. It encompasses all the things that I've been through um, and what that means to me in um, a world that has not always been happy, 
You know, it's been filled with grief, it's been filled with pain, it's been filled with lots of things. What does that mean to come to grips with God? Perhaps I can put that into a perspective in another way when you think about friendship. So any of you who know me know that my best friend in the whole world is Becky Josperger. You probably know Becky more than you know me. Um, and the two of us have been involved in all sorts of stuff over the course of the 15 years since she came in 2009. Um, we've written books together, we teach together, we lead together, we fight together um, about you know the significant things of the universe like the formation of the Hebrew verb. You know, there's these really important cosmic concepts. And, you know, and we've had to come to terms with the fact that while we are very alike in many ways, we are also very, very different. She's an eight, if you know the Enneagram. I'm a one. There's a right way to do things. And so we clash, whatever. And our friendship is incredibly rich, not because we always mesh, but because we both embrace each other for who we are. Friendship is not about being able to have this ideal in your head that somebody has to fit into. It's instead coming to terms with who someone is in all that they are and embracing that. And the same is true with God. You know, I, there are parts about God and his character and the things that he does that really excite me. They're the things that make me feel warm and fuzzy inside, you know, the comfort and all that. But then there are other things that have been incredible challenges and that I find myself wondering, God, what in the heck are you doing? I do not understand. And I remember back in Exodus, you remember when Moses is at the burning bush and he asks, God, what is your name? How are you going to reveal yourself to your people? And God responds and he says, I am who I am. And for many of us, perhaps, we associate that expression with God's eternal character. But God's eternal character is not expressed like that. It would be simply, I am. God says, I am who I am. Because basically, he was telling Moses that he was going to be everything that he is on behalf of his people. And on some level, I have to come to terms with the fact that God is the entirety of his being. The things that I don't understand, the things that I do, I'm in a constant journey to enter into a relationship with God that is never static, it's always ongoing. So when, so when Tim asked, would you like to speak, I thought, absolutely. The immediate thought that came to my mind was, we are a people who see God and in sharing that, there's three things that I would like to bring out that are kind of at the core of both what I think of when that comes to mind and my own journey. So the first one is we must see God as he truly is. That's the first one. We must see God as he truly is. The second one, we must recognize that God can do whatever he wants. That was, that's the hard piece. Okay. And then we need to know that God truly delights in our good. Okay? So those are the three things that I would like to share with you today. The first one, we must see God as he truly is. Um, I'm currently in the process of working on a commentary on the book of Isaiah. I love Isaiah. It's how I started learning Hebrew 40 years ago. 
I wanted to study the book in more detail. So I spent years and years on it, and there's one passage that has always just profoundly shocked me. And it's the one in chapter 6 when Isaiah has his call to be a prophet. And it begins like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, lofty and exalted, with the hem of his garment filling the temple. Seraphim were standing in attendance, each with six wings. With two, each covered his face. With two, each covered his feet. And with two, each one hovered in the air. One cried out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the earth. The doorposts of the entrance shook from the sound as each cried out, and the building was filling with smoke. Now, he's at the entrance. He hasn't even gone in yet. And he sees this incredible vision of God. And then Isaiah responds and says, Woe is me, I'm toast. Dynamic version. For I am a man with unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But one of the seraphim flew to me, holding with tongs a burning coal that he had taken from the altar. He touched it to my lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is removed. Your sin is atoned. Now, for a long time, when I read through that passage, I always connected Isaiah's response with his sense of unworthiness to be a prophet. There's lots of prophets who responded that way. Moses, remember, he objected and said, God, you know, send whoever you want, just not me. Jeremiah expressed his own sense of unworthiness. And I always kind of took it as if he was responding to his inadequacy to be a prophet of God. But then it struck me that it's an odd response for him to include everybody. He doesn't just say, I'm a person of unclean lips. He says, the entire nation is a people of unclean lips. And God certainly was not preparing to make all of them prophets and prophetesses. Because at this point in the game, the issue of his prophetic role isn't even on the table. What he's struggling with is that these seraphim have proclaimed the essence of the nature of God, and he cannot do so in a way that is worthy of God's character. He recognizes that God is so great that there is nothing that he can do to capture it because of his humanity because of where we are in terms of our sin, because of our mortality. We cannot embrace the character of God and convey it in a way that is in any way adequate. And I think that's the challenge as we face a world that's broken. We find ourselves struggling with both the justice of God and then times where we feel like God is um, detached, where God is distant, Sometimes we feel like he's being unjust. And at some point, we have to be able to recognize that part of the problem is we don't understand God. We don't see him. We have to be committed to an ongoing journey of experiencing God for who he is in all of his personhood. Just like my friendship with Becky, I have to be willing to say, okay, God, this is who you are. How am I going to come to terms with that? So over the course of my life, I found that 
I have constantly been shocked. I have constantly been pushed against the boundaries of who I thought God was, and I have to come to terms with who God really is. The second piece, and I'm going to pick up on a different story here, is that we have to recognize that God can do whatever he wants. Now, this taps into my backstory. Okay? So um, let me lay the foundation first from the biblical text. One um, very familiar story, probably for all of us, is the story of Job. Okay? We have this righteous man. He's been righteous all of his life. Um, he has been blessed in every aspect of his um, existence. He's got a position of honor. He has a large family. He's got flocks. He's got herds. He has great wealth. But you remember that it's all stripped away in a seemingly senseless series of events. And although Job asks time and time and time again for answers, he never really gets one. And when God finally does show up, God doesn't answer the question why. Instead, we find God asking questions. So, for example, at the beginning of Job 38, God immediately launches in and he says, who are you that darkens my counsel with words that lack knowledge? You don't even know what in the heck you're talking about. After all of this, you don't really see the true nature of the universe. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who was it that shut in the sea with doors as it came rushing forth from the womb when I measured out a boundary and I set bolted doors and said, this far you will go and no further? And Job is barraged with question after question after question about the creation of the world, the distribution of the rain and snow from above, the provision for the animals, and the countdown of months for the mountain goats, and who created the ostrich, and all sorts of stuff. We read it and we think, what in the world is God doing? No answers are given as to why God subjected Job to these things. And at the end, Job simply has to reply... Behold, I am of no account. How can I answer you? I put my hand over my mouth. And then at the end of another round of questions, he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose is beyond you. Who am I to darken counsel without knowledge? Clearly, I have spoken about things I do not understand, things that are far beyond me that I do not know. Now, 30 years ago, I was at the University of Wisconsin um, studying Hebrew and Semitic languages, classical Greek, and did my PhD dissertation on Job. Since then, many times over, I have thought that I should have picked a shorter book and a happier book. Those, those are my two takeaways. So if those of you, if any of you are thinking about graduate school, short and happy. Okay, just keep that in mind. Um, at the time, my life intersected with Job's on many, many levels. Um, my wife had plunged into a period of uh, depression and illness. Um, the house was dark when I left in the morning, and many times it remained dark when I returned home. There had been no movement throughout the day. 
The absence of light in my home was a metaphor for the absence of light in our lives. That in this crisis stretched to days and weeks and months and ultimately decades. When friends would ask, how are you doing? I would respond and say, you know, we're trusting God, you know, and he's taking good care of us. And at those times, those assertions were more a theology of what I wanted to believe than they were what I really believed. You know, faith is sometimes about the aspiration and the clinging to hope and less about the certainty of what you actually feel inside of you. So I, in grief and in hardship, I began to turn to the age-old practice of giving thanks for the things that God is doing. That turned out to be kind of counterproductive for me because what I found is, like Job, every time I gave thanks for something, it was stripped away. And I got to a point where I did not want to thank God for anything because it was terrifying. Um, I realized that at some point, I needed to come to terms with the fact that God could do whatever he wanted. I mean, it was confronting me day after day while I was working on this dissertation on Job. So I thought, well, you know, I should apply the scripture. You know, so I tried to come to terms with the fact that God can do whatever he wants. And frankly, it terrified me because that was exactly what was happening is he was doing whatever the heck he wanted. And it was frightening. It was frightening. And not only did I not like it, I didn't know how long I could endure through it. And I lost all hope. Because when you acquiesce to the fact that God can do whatever he wants, if it's not tempered with something about an awareness, an intimacy of, with his character, a, a, an, an understanding that these are the exceptions rather than the rule, there is no hope. And so it was very depressing. It was incredibly hard. And I had to come back to Job at that time, and I began to see things that uh, were there. They were latent all the time, but poignantly impacted me in a new and fresh way. I realized that as you go through the book, you find that God is constantly underscoring the fact that he rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And although it does not always seem like that is true, there is a huge arc between our experience and the realization of what God does to set things straight. Decades, years, millennia sometimes. And it's hard to find, it, hard to, to, to find um, tangible character to that or to embrace it in any way. It is constantly being affirmed as the norm. It's, a, it's the place where I have to root myself when I'm going through these challenges in my life. So, it's an unshakable reality. We talk about it as God's justice, if you will. Sometimes you'll hear the word theodicy, which is a, a Greek term, fancy schmancy thing that just means God's justice. And in the book of Job, you see it reiterated in a number of places. First of all, there's the prologue. Okay, so you start out, and in the prologue, both the narrator and Job, uh, not Job, sorry, the narrator and God affirm the fact that there is a direct correlation between 
Job's righteousness and the fact that God has been protecting him. He's been caring for him. Now, this is all going to get turned on its head, okay? But the premise of the book starts by saying God does reward people who walk with God. You get into the dialogues, and most of us, I, I, you know, I'm, let's be honest. Most of us read chapters 1 and 2, and then we jump to the end, okay? So the book of Job is three chapters long for many people. It's actually 42. So if you get to the section, second section, which is long, um, Job and his friends are interacting, and it's poetry. And I recognize the fact that most of us don't like poetry either, except you like songs, so you do like poetry, you just won't admit it. So <laughs> we get to this section with Job and his friends, and we find ourselves utterly confused, which is part of the point. You have to be confused. You have to feel what Job feels. But if you can kind of break it down to its bottom core, what you discover is they're all saying the same thing. God rewards the righteous, and he punishes the wicked. The problem is that for Job's friends, they look at that paradigm and they say, hmm, Job is not experiencing reward. He must be wicked. And Job is over there thinking, hmm, I'm righteous, but I'm being punished. God must be doing something wrong. The paradigm is still the same. It was affirmed in the prologue. It's affirmed here. And then when Job encounters God, he does not, um, he does not answer Job's questions, but his questions are assertions, not true questions. So when he asks about, you know, who was it that set the boundaries for the sea? Who is it that counts out the dates for the birth of the mountain goats? All these things. What God's saying, I do all this. I'm the one who takes care of all this. I'm the one who is showing care and provision and kindness to the universe. I've got this. You need to let it go. And I'm pretty sure Job got that. I think that while he felt overwhelmed by the sense of the majesty of God and the sovereignty of God and the fact that God can do whatever he wants, there was also this point at which he recognized that implicit in all these questions was a statement that there's so much more that you don't know and I've got your back. Okay? And he was willing to let it go. And then we get to the end of the book and we find that at the end of the book, Job is rewarded. His possessions come back. He has a new set of children. Um, he's given honor again. And so we find this book that constantly reiterates the fact that God cares for us. Now, part of the book of Job seems like it undermines that. And even the parts that seem like they're undermining God's care and benevolence are actually reinforcing the same point. So, for example, let's go back to the beginning, to the prologue. There are a couple of things in the prologue that bother us. Okay? The first of them is the wager with Satan. Okay? We, don't, we don't really like that. I mean, one, I would love it if anything like that ever happened. I would just love it if God would just not really think about me. You know, Don't mention me. Um, it would be nice to kind of eh, give him a pass. Not that I want any of you, you know, to be volunteered for that, but I would just like to not be on the radar. Um, that wager with Satan really bothers us. But I think something that you need to, to notice is that 
We don't like Satan. Okay, fine, I don't like him either. But his question is the most important question in the book. Okay, it's the most important question in the book. That question that he asks is, does Job worship God for nothing? It is not a question that God needs answered. It is a question that Job needs answered, even though he doesn't know it yet. Okay? And we tend to read the prologue, and we tend to focus on the final verses of the first two chapters. So we get to the end of his first experience. He's lost his children. He's lost all of his flocks and his herds and everything. And he gets to the end of the first chapter, and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. And we think, oh, how, how pious, how great. From my life, I read his words and I think, oh, dude, you still haven't even grappled with this yet. You know, you're, you're spouting your theology, and I appreciate that, but you haven't felt the pain of it to the extent that it will yet come. And indeed, we get to chapter 2, and then he finds that he's got all of his health stripped away from him, um, creates some tension between him and his wife, and at the end of chapter 2, he says, should we accept good from God and not accept calamity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, here's why I'm a little bit skeptical about the end of the prologue. When Satan asked the question, does Job worship God for nothing, even when you go through the deepest hardship possible, if you feel like God is close, you can handle it. Job hasn't been tested with regard to this question at the end of the prologue, because if he had, you would have had a shorter book. It would have been done. You need the dialogues because you need the friends and the conversations in time and space to put that to the test and to bring Job to a point where in the only way possible, he can experience the absence of God because we really don't experience the absence of God. He is always there. But there has to be a way to make that happen, and it happens in dialogue with his friends. It doesn't mean they're not really friends, but their misconceptions, the way that they talk past one another at the coffee table, you know, at, at the coffee shop, well, actually, he's out on the trash heap, but, you know, they had coffee. They brought, brought him drinks. And they're talking, and, you know, they're bypassing one another, and in the midst of it, Job gets to a point where he, he's kind of reaching the conclusion, well, if, if this is the way that it's going to be, then God hates me. God is my enemy. And at that point, he loses God. So he's lost his possessions, he's lost his children, he's lost his health. But it's only in chapters 3 through 32 that he loses God. And the true answer to the question can be resolved. Does Job worship God for nothing. And it's at that point that Job then experiences this encounter with God. And I don't think that he even cared whether or not God answered his questions. What he really wanted was for God to show up again. He needed that to happen. And indeed, God, God responded in that way. Now, there's another aspect of the prologue that I find comfort in as well. And that is, we get to see 
behind the scenes. This is really important in the book of Job. In my life, I have no clue why I have had to go through the things that I've gone through. None at all. I mean, I can come up with some possibilities, but I doubt they're real. They would just be ways for me to kind of smooth it over and make myself feel good. At the end of the day, what we really need is for God to step in and to give us an inside scoop on somebody else so that we know there is a reason. Okay, so the book has been reiterating God delights in the righteous. He punishes the wicked. This is the paradigm. This is the way that it's supposed to work. Even when it doesn't work that way, the veil is pulled back, and we get to see what set in motion the events in the life of Job. And we realize there was a cause. There was something else that needed to be achieved that displaced the standard for a period of time. It needed to happen. There is a reason we also find that when we get to the epilogue, we get to the end of the chapter, and here's where we get put out again, we find Job being restored, and sometimes we feel very much like Job. There are other times we don't, and frankly, I haven't felt much like Job in this regard. It hasn't been restored. I don't know if it'll ever be restored. His story is not my story in the least. Well, that's the point. That's the point. Because at the epilogue... The final chapter of the book does not undermine the premise of the book. It actually underscores it. Because all the way through the book, God has been asserting that I have a standard. I am a God of justice and righteousness. I reward the righteous. I punish the wicked. And if the test is the only reason why Job is going through these circumstances, if Job is not restored at the end of the book, then God becomes a source of evil. Because that's the only reason he was put to the test in the first place. Okay? The situation has changed. The cause is gone. Job is restored. But that's Job's story, not mine, not yours. We get to see behind the veil, but who knows what the causes are. And I have no guarantee that my life is going to be restored, that somehow it's going to look like it was before, or it's somehow going to come back to a point where it's intact and that I'm going to be able to, to feel like I have this connection with Job chapter 42. I don't have that guarantee. I don't have that kind of um, guarantee that God is going to respond to me the same way that he responds to you. Each of us has our own story. And that's what the book of Job discloses for me. So when I look at my life and I look at the different things that I faced, both in terms of the health struggles and whatnot that my wife faced early on, the crises of faith that challenged me when I was in graduate school, and then all the things that have happened over the years, I find that I have to come to terms with a God that can do whatever he wants. And I also have to come to terms with the fact that I know who God is, and I can't put them together in a way that makes me feel comfortable. It's more like having two, um, two of Aesop's fables. Both illustrate truth, but when you try to put them together, all the stories blur together to where they're no longer poignant. I have to hold this one, I have to hold this one, and then somehow I navigate the space in between. 
So as I look at my life, I find myself looking back and saying, God was not obligated to heal my wife. It lasted for 30 years. He was not obligated to heal my wife. He was not obligated to dispel the darkness and emotional trauma from decades of that hardship. God was not obligated to keep my marriage from falling apart as a result of that after 30 years. God was not obligated to preserve any memories for me of those 30 years. My memories of my marriage are like that wedding photo album that you have on your coffee table that has eight shots in it. And you flip through, they are static images of events, and you know you were there, and then that's about it. God was not obligated to preserve any of that. He was not obligated to preserve me from the trauma of those times. He was not obligated to give me children or grandchildren. He was not obligated to protect me from the slander of people that I once called friends. He was not obligated to keep me from getting cancer, and he's not obligated to preserve my life or to let me know the number of my days. I have to come to terms with that because I see God. And that's so critical. It, it's immensely comforting, not because I have been able to shape God into my own image, but because I have come to terms with his character. There's a book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Um, I don't know. I, I don't find many people who have read it. It was written in the early 1900s, uh, theologian, and he's got this segment, uh, one chapter, where he's talking about different attributes of God. And he says, God for us is a God who is familiar because we've made him in our own image. And to the extent that I have made him in my own image, I have not yet come to terms with the God of the Bible. And when I do, I both struggle with my reality, but I also find immense hope, a hope that is rooted in something that is real and true and profound and doesn't necessarily just get a, give a simplistic answer to something that is far more complex and complicated. So, in closing, I am reminded of a verse in the book of Hosea. This, too, just blows my mind when I read it. It's in Hosea chapter 11. He's talking about the way that he had taken care of Israel from their early days. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they'd gone into Egypt. He brought them out. He thought that they would follow him, and they didn't. And so they've been subject to his judgment. And he's trying to figure out what in the world he's going to do with his people. And then he makes this statement. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And Ephraim is, remember, one of the tribes of Israel. They're kind of the poster child of the northern kingdom. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I give you up like Adma or treat you like Zeboim? Now, Adma and Zeboim are not, you know, the most prominent cities that we're used to. They were actually destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm not sure why he didn't just say Sodom and Gomorrah, but he didn't. But he's saying, you know, I, I don't know what to do with you, and you're kind of at a point where you're kind of at the bottom of the stack in terms of what I would like to do. And my heart within me is just completely unraveled. All of my compassions are kindled. Now, I didn't expect it to go here. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger 
I will not turn to destroy Ephraim because I am God, not human. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in rage. Now, what struck me as I was reading through this is he associates his holiness with something I never do. When I think of God as holy, I think of judgment, wrath, distance, separation, inaccessible, eternal. And yet God takes his holiness and he associates it with showing mercy. And I think that is, in a sense, a nutshell, the essence of what we're talking about here today. To the extent that I understand the otherness of God, I open the door for the imminence and closeness of God. Because I realize that it is precisely his lack of being human, his not being plagued by our faults, his lack of being prone to inconsistency, his not being limited by short-sightedness, his not being limited in power that makes him able to reach down into our lives and to transform where we are. So I hope that as we look forward and as we take close scrutiny of where we are today and what we are navigating personally, that we come to terms with the fact that we need to see God as he truly is. I want a relationship not with a figment of my imagination. I want a relationship with the one true God of the universe. I hope, too, that we recognize that God can do whatever he wants. I've, I've joked a number of times that I'm a Christian Buddhist. <laughs> and I, it's because if you don't have desires, you won't have pain. And if you don't have pain, or if, if you don't have expectations, you will not have pain. And sometimes I think we handle our Christianity not in light of coming to terms with the character of God. We come to terms by not having expectations, not, not engaging, not even trying to... Um, not trying to fully embrace and wrestle with the circumstances that we experience. And so we're Christian Buddhists instead of Christian theists. And so to the extent that we can recognize that God can do whatever he wants, we actually open the door then for us to understand the real character of God that keeps showing itself at points along the way. They might be often, but sometimes they might be few and far between because of what we're going through. And I have no idea where you are today and what you're going through in your life, but I've gone through decades of life sometimes where it feels like there's one point of contact where I see the character of God with clarity in a way that puts it back into focus. It does not change the fact that that is true by the proportionality of what I'm experiencing. They're both true. I have to embrace them and hang on to them. As we step from here, we're going to go into um, sharing and communion. Remember that when Jesus was here on earth in his final days, he, he sat down with the disciples and he broke bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. It's the epitome of the expression of the character of God who reaches out to us. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. And I don't know about you, but in, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that if we ever come before the, the table of the Lord, we should come um, in a worthy manner. And I don't know if you have ever felt like, oh, somehow I have to 
become worthy to take part in this memorial of our um, engagement with the life of Christ. That was never Paul's concern. He was talking about people who decided to use communion as lunch. Because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has always been about grace. And partaking of this is not about trying to become worthy to take of communion. It's about having a relationship with Christ and recognizing two things. One, it's always about grace. In seeing God as who he is, we also can have a very clear picture of who we are. And then we also realize that we're stepping into this relationally. And it doesn't matter whether you're taking Yes.